Well, thank you for having me with you again on this Sunday to worship the Lord together. It's a wonderful privilege on my part to be with you and to preach the Word of God, to read the Word of God, to teach you the Word of God, and to feed you on the truth of the Lord. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. As you're turning there, I'm so thankful for the the high view of the Word here and the high view of worship, the high view of Christ, our sovereign King. You're learning about Him in the book of Colossians, I hear, and that is a wonderful thing. Today, in about an hour or two, I'm going to be back at my church congregation in St. Louis finishing an exposition through Isaiah chapter 53. And so I've been enjoying the doctrine of Christ as well as you have been going through the book of Colossians and so much riches and treasure in the word on our great God and our great Savior. But today, Mark chapter 10 is where we are, Mark 10 And I want to read verses 32 all the way to 45. I know it's kind of a lengthy portion of Scripture. It's a little bit uncommon for me to preach a portion this long. It's kind of three paragraphs that are all brought together right here in this section. But what I want to do is bring you a sermon that I have entitled, The Son of Man's Loving Work in Suffering in Your Place. I hope that when we are finished today, the beauty of Christ and the cross work of Christ and the gospel of Christ will be at the very forefront of your mind in fresh worship, not just in this place here in the meeting of the saints, but even as you go from here to worship him this afternoon and all week long in your own hearts. So follow with me, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. This is the word of the Lord. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles." They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. 
Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 that God demonstrates his own love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I've been reading a book in my morning prayer time. It's a book that I've read before, but I just had to come back to it. It had been so long. Written by the Puritan Thomas Watson, entitled A Godly Man's Picture. And in this section on the love of God, the godly man is a man who loves Thomas Watson recounted the story of how there was a man of God walking in the garden on one occasion and he was weeping, just weeping profusely. And a friend approached him and the friend asked him, why are you weeping? And the godly man said, oh, the love of Christ. Oh, the love of Christ. Do you know the love of Christ? Has it gripped your heart? Has it changed the way that you think? Has it, has it changed the way that you live? Has the love of Christ reached down from heaven with strong arms, as it were, and has it grabbed you and seized you with mighty arms of divine tenderness and brought you to himself in salvation? We see that today in our passage, but not only in our passage today, really in the final events of the, of the week of our Lord. We call it the Passion Week. Listen to some of the gripping events that take place in the Passion Week, all in obedience to the Father and for your redemption. On the final week, the final few hours of our Savior's life, he celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples. And then Judas was exposed as a traitor during that Passover meal, and he left, and then Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, the communion meal. Late at night, Jesus left the upper room, and he prayed in Gethsemane for three hours, as the gospel writers record it. Very late at night, Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he was brought before three Jewish trials. They were all illegal. They were all profoundly unjust and unlawful. And then he was taken to three Roman trials before Pontius Pilate, before Herod Agrippa, and then back again before Pontius Pilate. Pilate finally caved. He gave the Jews what they wanted, what they had demanded. He, he had Jesus scourged. He had Jesus to be handed over to be crucified. And, and Jesus was mocked. And he was beaten. And he was spit upon. He was ridiculed. And he had to carry his own cross all the way to Golgotha. It was nine o'clock morning, in the morning when our Savior was lifted up on the cross. 
In the first three hours, hanging on a cross, Jesus uttered three sayings. The first, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The second statement was, today, to the thief on the cross who had repented, today you will be with me in paradise. And then the third statement in these three hours, speaking to his mother, Mary, and to John the Apostle, woman, behold your son, and speaking to John, behold your mother. And then it was at midday, 12 noon, darkness came over the whole land, and Jesus cried out, this cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the final three hours, that he was hanging from the cross, he uttered three more sayings. One of them is, I thirst. Right after that, he had a very important and yet a very short word that he had to say. It is finished. And then that final statement on the cross from Luke twenty-three forty-six, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it is through these events, it is through the, the, the man, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is through the work that he accomplished on the cross that, that heaven's door is thrown wide open to me and to you. Aren't you thankful for that? It's a wide door, but it's a very exclusive door as well. It's an accessible door. It is an open door. It is an available door calling sinners, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, to come to this Savior and know this love that has been poured out on the cross for the salvation of his people. This door of heaven is thrown wide open, but it's not just thrown open. Jesus, our sovereign Lord, he does the work and he carries us through that door to himself by his own work. It's an amazing work of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see there at the end of the passage that I read, Mark chapter 10, do you see there in verse 45 in your copy of God's Word? It's kind of the summary verse, the theme verse for the whole book of Mark. What is Mark all about? And Mark 10, 45 summarizes it. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's that theme verse. It's the summary of the work of Christ. We see he's called the Son of Man. That's the Savior. A messianic title from Daniel chapter 7. The book of Ezekiel picks up on this. It is a messianic title highlighting and emphasizing that Jesus is Messiah. He's the coming one. He's a true man who would come to redeem sinners. Not only does verse 45 bring us to the Savior, the Son of Man, but it shows us that he came to serve. He did not just come to be served. He came to serve. God left heaven, taking on real, genuine humanity, not coming and demanding that he be served, but setting the ultimate example in serving sinners like us. The Savior, we see the service, and, and then finally the substitute. Look at what he did. He came to give his life, verse 45, a ransom for many. He came to die in the place of his people. When Jesus died for me, when he died for my sins, that's that great theme through all the word that Jesus is our substitute, that he had to die in my place. 
that he took my sins that I deserve. The punishment that I deserve by taking my sin. He took the judgment of God and he absolutely appeased and satisfied and quenched the wrath of God through his work on our behalf on the cross. But if the Savior was with you today and you were walking with him and you were journeying with Jesus in the final days, weeks of his life, What would he say to you? What would he want you to know? What would he want you to remember about his love and about his work and about his gospel? And I think in our passage today in Mark chapter 10, I want to give you three simple truths of what the Savior would say to us. And they're very simple. This is not a super profound outline, but I pray it'll be memorable and helpful as we go through it together. What would the Son of Man say to you if he was journeying with you and if you were walking with him in the final weeks of his life? Number one, he would say this to you. I want you to see my sufferings. Do you see it right here in verses 32 to 34? I want you to see my sufferings. And we know from Mark chapter 10 that Jesus in the final weeks of his life is making the journey from the Galilee area down the Jordan River Valley up from Jericho through the Jordan Valley and through the hills to Jerusalem for the final week of his life. And there are crowds with him, many crowds, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people. The Pharisees are there. The disciples are there. Many pilgrims who are going down to Jerusalem for the Passover meal. Jesus is with crowds. And as they're on the road, verse 32, going up to Jerusalem, Jesus is walking on ahead of the disciples, and they were amazed. They'd just seen miracles. And there are some who followed who were fearful because he's been talking about dying. And then Jesus again took the 12 aside and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. I mean, a third time, Jesus will now repeat, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. We read it in Mark 8, verse 31. And then we saw it in Mark 9, verse 31. And now in Mark 10, verse 33 and 34 is the third description, the repetition, the prediction of his passion. You know, the Apostle Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2, that Jesus Christ is the living stone who was rejected by men. What does that mean, he was rejected by men? Well, look at all the verbs that Jesus describes right here of verse 33, Mark 10, 33. Look at what our Savior says about his sufferings and his rejection. Verse 33, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. That's a legal term. That's a judicial term, meaning he will, be, he will be judicially handed over for judgment. He's prophesying his own suffering by being delivered over under trial. Not only would he be handed over, but verse 32, uh, 33 tells us that he would also be condemned to death. They will say, you're guilty. Crucify him. 
And then we read in verse 33 that they will hand him over to the Gentiles, prophesying Pilate and and the Romans. They're going to hand him over. They're going to deliver him over. But then he gives more detail. Look at verse 34. They're going to mock the Son of Man. They're going to spit on the Son of Man. They're going to scourge or flog the Son of Man. They will kill him. I mean, can, can you see the specificity and the detail of Jesus saying to those who are traveling with him, I want you to see my suffering. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be mocked, spit upon, scourged, flogged, legally handed over by the hands of Romans under trial, although it was unjust, under trial. And 1 Peter chapter 1, again, Peter, Peter is, is writing and reflecting on the sufferings of Christ, and he said, these are things that even angels long to look into. I mean, what, what, what a suffering Messiah that even the angels in glory are longing to look into this. What a, what a plan, what a design of God, what a way to save sinners. I want you to see my sufferings, not for his own sin, but I want you to see my sufferings for your sins. But he doesn't end only with the suffering. Look at the end of verse 34. And three days later, this is what Jesus has done on all three occasions when he's prophesied his death on this journey. He will rise again. This is the hope of the resurrection. But do you see here? Do you see the resolve of Christ for you? Do you see right here in these verses the courage of Christ? To save people like me and you. He he didn't flinch. He didn't run away from this. He knew exactly what was coming. And he faced it head on. Or to use the language of Isaiah. He set his face like flint. He knew what was coming. And he charged on. As a mighty strong savior. Knowing that suffering. Awaited him. What a single-minded Savior he is. What a Savior who is traveling with crowds, traveling with the disciples, and he tells them, I want you to see my suffering. More on that in a little bit, but let's look at a second truth. What would Jesus say to you? Not only I want you to see my suffering, but now as we go to the next paragraph, verses 35 to 40, he would say, second of all, I want you to see my sovereignty. Yes, I am going to die. Yes, I am going to suffer. But second, I want you to see my sovereignty. We are living in such interesting days, but they're really not new. Nothing new under the sun, as the writer puts it in Ecclesiastes, because the lust for greatness can so often be so disgustingly blunt, can it? It really can. And right here in verses 35 to 40, we have an example, we have an example of the disciples in their earthly mindedness, in their lust for power, in their lust for authority and honor. Verse 35, look at it in your Bible. Look at what happens. I mean, Jesus just said he's going to suffer. 
And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Do you see that? That's right after Jesus said, I'm going to be spit upon for you. I'm going to be mocked for you. I'm going to be crucified for you. What, what a suffering Messiah. And now they say, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. It's like, it's like they're, they're, they're treating Jesus as if he is their butler. Do whatever I want. You're at my bidding. This is a blank check, Jesus, that I want you to do for me. And Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Look at how they respond. Verse 37. Verse 37. They said to Jesus, grant, give, that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in glory. <laughs> Jesus, we want the places of supreme honor. We want the power, the reputation. We want the places of highest honor. We want the preeminence. They wanted the glory. They wanted the preeminence. They wanted the greatness. They wanted the recognition. It reminds me of what James chapter 3 says. In James chapter 3, if you have bitter jealousy... And selfish ambition in your heart. Do not be arrogant and lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, guess what the result is? There's disorder of every evil thing. I mean, don't we see that in our day? We see that in our own hearts. There's disorder and every evil thing. These guys, James and John, the disciples, Jesus just said that he's going to suffer and die for them, and now they have the audacity to say to Jesus, I want the place of honor in glory. Thank you for suffering for me, but I want the place of glory and honor in the kingdom. What an amazing Request. Their zeal is accompanied by selfish ambition. To sit on the right would be the position of highest honor. To sit on the left would be the second highest position of honor. Look at what Jesus is going to say. I mean, how would you respond in verse 38 after that request? Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? I think this is language that speaks of the coming trouble, suffering, anguish. The idea of drinking a cup is a biblical theme. It's from the Psalms and the prophets, all through the word of God, which is often a picture of drinking a cup, as it were, of God's wrath. Are you able to drink the cup of God's wrath? Remember, there's suffering before the glory. Are you able to drink the cup that I am drinking? 
Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? I mean, I'm going to be submerged and plunged and engulfed in the wrath of God on the cross. Are you able to drink this? Are you able to bear this? You, you want the honors. You want the prestige. You want the glory. Are you willing to suffer? Well, interestingly, Jesus says to them in verse, 30, or verse 39, they respond, we are able. We are able to do that. Well, then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Well, and you know, that's true. That's true. Because those disciples, and really all the apostles, they had a great measure of suffering as the disciples and apostles of our Lord. Certainly not as much as the Lord would suffer. But they all had their share of sufferings. James, according to Acts 12.2, was the first apostle to experience martyrdom. Even John, even John the Apostle, may have been the last to experience death toward the end of the first century, but he had his own share of sufferings. And all the other apostles, the other 11, the other 10, the other 9, they suffered as well. You will suffer. You will drink this cup. You will be baptized. But look at verse 40. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. God has sovereignly prepared the places of honor. But let's come back to the theology for a moment. Let's come back to what Jesus is saying here in this language of drinking the cup and being baptized with this baptism. What is that all about theologically? I think when Jesus says in verse 38 that I'm going to drink the cup and be baptized, I think he's referring to his active and his passive obedience. Let me share with you what I mean. When Jesus said... I will choose to die, meaning I will drink the cup. He's actively choosing to drink the cup. What's the cup? It's the cup of God's wrath. I'm going to drink it. I'm going to take it. I am going to actively choose to die. He remains in control. He lays down his life, and he has authority to take it up again. He is actively drinking the cup, but he also receives the baptism as well. What is that? That's the passive obedience, submitting to the blows that came to him from God. When Jesus was on the cross, yes, he drank the cup, but he also submitted himself to the Father's wrath, which came upon him. We might say from Jesus' words here that we see the obedience of our Lord. We see the, the, the glory of our Lord. We see the sovereignty of the Lord even in his suffering in that he would submit to the blows that would come to him from the Father and he would obediently choose to die and drink the cup. He was active and his passive in his obedience for your salvation. 
What a love. What a God. What a, what a gospel that our Savior, in such a moment of emotion, as he's writing and speaking, Mark is writing, but Jesus is speaking about his coming suffering and rejection and crucifixion, kind of a bonehead question, a prideful question. We want the places of honor. And yet Jesus even affirms his perfect saving work under the wrath of God for their gain. Jesus did this, but you and I never could. Who could swallow the wrath of God and drink the cup of God's wrath and then say it's finished? Who could do that? Only a divine, majestic, glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus alone, can say it's finished. You see, his sovereignty in drinking the cup and in being baptized. And then he enters glory. Christian, just even for a moment of just pondering this, I mean, drink up this truth, as it were. That, that, that Jesus drank the cup empty so he could then give you a cup, but it's not an empty cup. Get this. It's a full cup overflowing with blessing. Isn't that amazing? He was baptized in his Father's wrath so you could be baptized in divine love. Jesus' work for you on the cross really ought to ignite your work for him in your life. The love of Christ for you ought to result, it ought to ignite, it ought to propel a great love that you have for him and for others. What a, what a savior, what a savior. What a divine and a powerful king who would stoop so low to die so that he could take you up to glory to reign with him. What a savior, what a lord, what a king. If you were walking with Jesus on that road in these final days just before the Passion Week, what would he want you to know? Number one, he would say, see my suffering. Number two, I want you to see my, see my sovereignty. But now number three, in verses 41 to 45, what would the Savior say? He would say, I want you to see my substitution. I want you to see my substitution. And in verses 41 to, to, to 43, Jesus is teaching them. He is, he is reminding them that selfish ambition will lead to conflict. It will lead to conflict. That's what James chapter 3 says in verses 13 to 18. And Jesus is going to bring an example from the world and say it ought not to be this way among God's people. Do you see it there in verse 41? Hearing this, the other ten disciples began to feel that they were indignant with James and John. Ha, they want the place of authority. What about us? But verse 42, Jesus called them to himself and Jesus said, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and the great men exercise authority over them. Don't we see that today? I mean, it's not hard to find that. We see it not just out there, 
But there's even roots of that right here in our own hearts. Leading through selfish ambition. I want to be great. I want to be first. I want to be known. I want to be pleasing. I want to be powerful. Almost like this demanding, heavy-handed leadership. We see that. That's, that's all over our world. Because it comes from a selfish, sinful heart. I mean, the world is always... The world has always been filled with ambitious, competitive, self-promoters who really, they know no limits to their own ambition. And many reach the heights of power, many lust for power, and yet what we see is right here, we see the danger of ambition and overconfidence and competitiveness that marks the worldly pursuit of greatness by self-promotion. And Jesus says, the world does that, but it should not be that way among God's people. This is what Jesus is emphasizing on the final journey to Jerusalem for the Passion Week. I mean, he he could talk about a great discourse on justification by faith. He could talk about a great long discourse on end times. He he could give, and he does bring out different truths, and the Gospel of John brings out more on that. But, But right here, we see such teaching on suffering. Do you see there in verse 43? It's not this way among you. If you want to be great... You must be servants. Or verse 44, if you want to be first, be slave. Now consider, could could that be said of you today? Could, Could that be said of you? God's way is not the world's way. If we want to be first, we ought to be last. If we want to be great, we ought to be low. If we want to, if we want to be honored. We must be slave. Could that be said of you in your marriage relationship? In in your parenting and grandparenting? As you treat others in the context of your own home? Others in the body of Christ right here? Even at work, amongst many non-believers, do you set an example of serving, of being humble like your Lord. And and then Jesus gives verse 45, that little word for at the beginning of verse 45 is, let me give you the ultimate explanation. Let me give you the reason why I'm saying everything I'm just saying. He doesn't call you to do something that he doesn't do. For even the Son of Man, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve, And to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus speaks of the ransom price which is necessary to free a slave. Oh, what, what did Jesus do? He came to ransom you. He came to buy you. He came to, to purchase you. He came to, to shed his own blood. He came to, to be rejected by men and suffer under the weight of God's wrath and then be put in a grave and then to rise again for your salvation. God serving? And that's the example for us. We see the beauty of substitution right here. This is the wonder of the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the very heartbeat of the gospel. There's no salvation without substitution. 
As Paul put it, the Son of Man loved me, and he gave himself up for me in Galatians 2. Do you know this substitute? Do you love this substitute? Has the love of Christ been lavished and poured out upon you? And notice the end of verse 45. He gives his life a ransom for many. Oh, I love that phrase, for many. What a Lord that he gives his life for the church. He dies for his elect. He dies for those whom the Father had given him. He dies for his sheep. He dies for all who would believe. He dies for those whom the Father had predestined. What a full redemption and a perfect atonement. That's why the author of Hebrews can say in chapter 9 and verse 12, through Jesus' death, he obtained eternal redemption. That's, that's the hope of the gospel. And as Jesus is walking to Jerusalem with the crowds, what does he choose to focus on right here in Mark's gospel? How does Mark bring it together? Three important truths. I want you to see my suffering, see my sovereignty, and see my substitution. This is your Lord. This is your Savior. This is the Son of Man who came to give his life for you in your place. In Thomas Watson's book, The Godly Man's Picture, one of the little chapters in there, the characteristics of the godly man is a chapter on love. A godly man is a man of love. When you and I behold the work of Christ, and we see the suffering work and the loving work of Christ, how should that affect us? How should we respond? Listen to what Thomas Watson says. He just gives a couple of helpful applications. He says, Christian, number one, you will value Christ above all honors. You will value him above all possessions. You will value him above all goods because he gave the ultimate price in gaining you. Christian, do you, do you value him? Do you, do you honor him? Do you cherish him above all possessions, all goods, all honors, all prestige, anything and everything this world could give? Do you value Christ? Thomas Watson said, second of all, the Christian should then say, I can't live without Christ. Give me Christ. Now, theologically, you and I know that we have Christ. You and I know that, that we are inseparable from Christ, that we are united to Christ. We get that. But in your day-to-day -day living, sometimes people say, I just can't live without my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my husband or my wife or my job. But for the Christian, I can't live without Christ. I need him. I need him every day. I need him in the morning. I need him when I'm commuting to work. I need him when I'm at work. I need him during the lunch break. I need him when I get home in the afternoon. I need him when I'm responding to emails and answering phone calls. I need my Savior. 
Thomas Watson said, refuse to complain when trials come your way in order to drive you closer to Christ. When we know the love of Christ and what he did for us, it ought to have this effect upon us that we say, Lord, I don't want to complain. I must refuse to complain. Because God brings trials to bring me closer to Christ. That's hard. It can be painful. But that's the work of our great God. Another application here, Thomas Watson said, and just one more here. He said, Christian, to know the love of Christ should have this effect. Bow low in humble submission before his beautiful feet. Bow low in humble submission. Not like James and John who said, do whatever I demand of you. We sit in willing bonds beneath his feet. We love the Lord. We love the King. Psalm 2, kiss the Son. Bow before the Lord of glory. This is the great love of God that is revealed in the cross. May today you see his suffering in a fresh way, his sovereignty in a fresh way by drinking the cup and being baptized for you. And then may you see his substitution for you. And may you rejoice and love your Savior more. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the glorious hope that we have in the gospel. We thank you for the truth that you have given. Thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Write these words upon our heart that we would apply the things that we have heard, not just to be hearers of the word, but doers of it for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.